welcome to the Theology Mill podcast brought to you by Whitfinstock Publishers. My name is Zach Mickle. I'm on staff here at Whitfinstock, and I'm also the host of this podcast, which consists of interviews with leading authors and thinkers in theology, biblical studies, and philosophy. If you like what you're hearing on the podcast, stop by our website at whitfinstock.com, where you can browse our catalog of publications and read our blog. You're currently listening to the second episode of our Bulgakov booth, uh, which is on the life and thought of the Russian Orthodox priest, theologian, economist, philosopher, Sergis Bulgakov. These interviews will explore some of the many twists and turns in Bulgakov's biography, personal, intellectual, and otherwise. And we'll also look at some of the key themes in his uh, very voluminous body of writing. On this episode, I get to welcome Dr. Jordan Daniel Wood back onto the show for a second time. Jordan earned his PhD in theology at Boston College in 2019, and shortly thereafter published the book, The Whole Mystery of Christ, Creation as Incarnation and Maximus Confessor, which came out in 2022 with Notre Dame Press. But most importantly, he is a stay-at-home father of four girls, which is quite a feat. So with that, thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. So I'm here, um, this is uh, with uh, uh, Dr. Jordan Daniel Wood. This is his second time on um, the podcast, so I think this is my first time having a a return, a return, uh, interviewee. So I'm very grateful, um, to have you on again. Um, but before we get started, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, kind of what you, what you do and also how you kind of came to be interested in Sergis Bulgakov? Yes. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks again for having me on. I take that as an honor that you have decided that I'm not entirely un- unworthy of <laughs> being invited back. <laughs> no, you definitely uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I, so I am, uh, I should say right up front, you know, because you've had now, I think three legitimate Bulgakov scholars on this, uh, on this series. And I am not in that category. <laughs> I am, uh, I'm like a super fan or something. Um, okay, okay. and, uh, you know, in a, a long time at this point now, I could say sort of a long time reader of him. Um, but, um, my, so my primary area as I think we talked about last time was in um yeah is in uh, Greek patristics and particularly in the thought uh, of Saint Maximus the Confessor um and he's the one I wrote a dissertation on and then turned that into a book for the University of Notre Dame Press um and so at the same time as well right so right now so I taught college for a few years taught high school for a year I think we went over all that last time but um uh, I got my PhD from Boston College, but now for the last two years, probably the most interesting thing about me, perhaps, is that um, is that I've been a stay-at-home dad of four young mm-hmm. girls for two over two years now. So, and I know our last podcast had a lot to do with sort of balancing that and trying to do scholarship on the side. So, I am still trying to do scholarship on the side and the interstices, as I like to say, when I when mm-hmm. I get a chance. Um, <laughs> And right now, probably the two notable, I have little things, but the two notable things, uh, projects that I'm doing are I'm still in the midst and I'm trying to bring to a close finally uh, here in the next several months, um, a translation of, um, it's the first ever English, full English translation of Maximus's epistolary or his 49 letters, 
um, into English for the Fathers of the Church series put out by CUAP. Mm, nice. Um, that that's kind of the principal project right now. I'm trying to have my deadline sort of the end of this cal- calendar year. So, but um, and then the other one is a NEH funded um, a translation. Sort of I'm a co-translator on a team that's going to put out an edition of. Uh, the uh, uh, lectures on the philosophy of revelation by Friedrich Schelling. Mm. So that's a whole nother, whole nother, um, you know, again, I'm not an expert in Schelling. We have experts in Schelling on the, on the board and guiding the project, but I am a co-translator of that text and that's pretty well underway now. Um, But that actually is probably useful to answer the last part of your question, because it sort of shows that my, my interests are, I think, uh, kind of in some of the, like they represent sort of the wellsprings of Bulgakov's own inspiration in addition to just his own creative genius. And that is sort of the patristic era, which he writes quite a bit about and which probably some of your other guests have already mentioned. Sadly, a lot of times the English translations will cut out some of his like long excursions, like historical excursions on, oh, really? on okay. uh, yeah, on church fathers and stuff. And so that's unfortunate because it's sort of, and uh, and Father Brandon, or Father Deacon, I think I can't remember which level of ordination is that, but um, um, Brandon Gallagher, another Bulgakov scholar, has pointed that out. That it's unfortunate because it sort of it kind of lends to that polemical reputation, uh, or yeah. sort of the, the, the polemic against like, oh, well, Bulgakov is just sort of making up all this stuff, or he's pulling almost exclusively from the 19th century, you know, idealists or something, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like as if he's unfamiliar with with uh the depths of uh the tradition the patristic heritage which which is false um he might have different reads you know he's going to appraise apollinarius yeah. for example differently than other people would but uh but to say he's unfamiliar is really is really a distortion so anyway i'm i'm interested in that i come primarily my own focuses have been in patristics but then also it is true that of course bogakov like all of the great russians the silver age um uh, and really just any major thinker of the early 20th century in philosophy and theology um, was also intimately familiar with, with a 19th century idealist thought. So in a way I'm kind of poised, right? Because I'm, mm-hmm. I have my yeah. foot in both of these worlds and then I'm a, therefore I'm an appreciator of Bulgakov. I think kind of from those directions, especially. Sure. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Now, so then... well, I, I should say, right. You asked, I, I got to throw this in there just because why not? Let's spice it up. <laughs> okay. I first encountered Bulgakov's writing through a, a very long critique of his thought by a Thomist. Oh, interesting. <laughs> okay. By, by a pretty hardcore, almost paleo-Thomist. I won't name names, but I read this very long S. It's like 50-something pages. Um, and And to his credit, to this thinker's credit, he was giving so much you know, I think ac- mostly accurate representation of Bulgakov's thought. Uh, like he would give block quotes and stuff. And I was kind of, as I'm going, you know, I'm thinking like, I know I'm supposed to like detest this, but every time you give me more, I actually quite like it. <laughs> uh, and he ends the essay by saying something like, you know, this is a breathtaking and beautiful vision of the, of the world, but alas, it's not the teaching of the church. Um uh, which was interesting because it's sort of an implicit admission that something could be utterly beautiful and somehow not the truth of the church, which is, <laughs> yeah, which is bizarre. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But nevertheless, I actually, so it was actually through his, uh, you might say his opponents or his enemies that I actually even encountered Bulakov, like for like, it's, it was sort of the catalyst that made me like, okay, I got to actually read this guy because sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, people were sort of, you know, 
putting his, you know, sort of dragging his name through the mud, but actually what I, the nuggets I'm getting are somewhat golden. Yeah, for sure. No, that's funny. That's funny. Okay. So then um, a question we've been asking everybody that comes on is if you could put, we'll start with Bulgakov and then if you could put three thinkers in a room all together with Bulgakov and you kind of got to be a fly on the wall and overhear their conversation, who, who would you choose to put in that room and why would you choose those people? I would choose Augustine. I would choose Saint Augustine, uh, Saint Thomas, Aquinas, and then Hegel. Okay. Um, I would choose Augustine because uh, you know Bulgakov wrote about Augustine on several occasions, and uh, I think some of his critiques are pretty incisive. They're not always on the mark, but some of them are very deep. So I would love to hear how mm-hmm. Saint Augustine would respond, um, and then kind of what would unfold there, especially around the questions of predestination. Um, and then I would say Thomas Aquinas because he is, of course, you know, this sort of stalwart and luminary in the, in the Western Latin tradition. And Bulgakov does also talk about Thomas and he engages him. Um, uh, but, uh, I would love to see what, you know, what kind of conversation they would have. And particularly there, I'd like to hear their conversation on Christology, um, mm. how they would understand that. And then finally, I'd say, Hegel, because although Bulgakov has, you know, sharp critiques of Hegel as well as, you know, pre- I mean, pretty much almost anyone Bulgakov touches, he's he, even if he's got quite a lot of a, a praise for them, he's also go- going to have, you know, sometimes severe criticisms. And that's yeah. that's because he's a real thinker, I think. Um, and uh, but even though he has sharp criticisms for for Hegel, especially in the uh, tragedy of philosophy, that work. um he also, you know, I think does either appropriates or 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 finds different ways to get to some of the intuitions Hegel ha- has, um, but maybe perhaps in a more explicitly dogmatic and orthodox way. Now, I don't mean to say he's like reading Hegel and like, hmm, how can I get to Hegel's conclusions, you know, in a more sort of, uh, uh, sort <laughs> yeah. of palatable way. It's not that. It's actually it's actually just as easy to see the other direction that perhaps some of Hegel's own intuitions are already so formed by uh, the Christian and specifically Christological tradition, not just the Trinitarian tradition, like like mm-hmm. people tend to assume um, uh, that uh, that um, Bulgakov might be sort of you know resonating with with intuitions that Hegel himself is working out in a different sort of way. But I mean, I don't know. I, I think the I think the very some of the core ideas that you'll find in Bulgakov, like the use of antinomy as sort mm-hmm. of charting out the, the, the limits of reason and reason understood as, um, you know, uh, reason understood as uh, the understanding as it's sort of sometimes mm-hmm. translated, right? Like the kind mm-hmm. of representational or abstract conceptualizations. Yeah. Uh, but, the, but then the, 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 like the sort of acceptance of that, that might be his acceptance of Kant's, usefulness for our thinking but then going beyond but then the need to say okay but that just means not that we can't go beyond sort of contra Kant, but it means that we need to go beyond in a in a totally different way way what he would maybe call Mm -hmm. you know through reason as opposed to understanding and and i i do think that i think that theme for example comes up quite a bit in bulgakov so i'd love to see them you know talk through Mm -hmm. um um i guess what it means to so to connect it right to the earlier figures, the the stuff around 
God is creator and God's will and predestination with Augustine, the stuff around Christology with Aquinas. I would love to then him see Bogakov have a discussion with Hegel, bringing that, that those themes and maybe others into the modern era. So mm. how do we, how do we discuss these things given the kind of challenges that, um, you know, uh, critical thought has, has brought uh, to the fore. And in some ways I think Bogakov's already doing that in a lot of his work. So, but I would love to hear that, you know, live mm -hmm. discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So for his, his conversation with Aquinas, what, what, a, why uh, Christology? Why does that, why do, why do their Christologies interest you? Why would that be the thing you would want to hear them talk about? <laughs> well, it, it gets at uh, something that we might touch on again later as well, which is, um, I, I, I'm becoming more convinced that one really fundamental divide in theologizing, um, um, you know, so I'm not, I'm not making a claim here about dogma or doctrine sort of generally. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying in understanding the, the dogma is, is kind of whether or not you think the incarnation is merely a response to a fallen world. Um, and perhaps the most fitting response, as Thomas would say in the third part of the Summa. Um, or you think it's something more fundamental, like the very uh, disclosure and ground of the God-world relation itself. Mm, yeah. And um, it ra so rather than sort of a repair operation um, that, well, you know, Adam sinned and there's original sin and now we need redemption. And the incarnation is one among many ways God could have salvaged us uh, but perhaps we might say it's the most fitting way for these three or four reasons right that kind of thing um bogakov starts i think actually pretty much exactly in line with saint maximus uh who who said that the incarnation is actually the highest reason for god creating anything he says it's that for the sake of which all else exists and which itself exists for the sake of nothing higher mm. And if you think that, that's just a totally different orientation to not just Christology proper, but to therefore all the classical loci of theology and systematic, uh, you know, topics and topoi. Yeah. So, so I think that, so, so it's not just that I would want, so I, I guess the point is, it's not just that I would want to see them kind of hash out, you know, what, what you know, the details of Christology proper, like what does each one of them make of the notion of in hypostatization, which is hardly at all in Thomas, is in Bulgakov, but he sort of has a critici criticism of it, even as he sort of sees something good in it. It's not just that, like the sort of details, the fine technical details of, of the incarnation, you know, as the event in history, but also how that how that fundamental divide of is this the is this the as it were almost reaction and i know you know thomas won't like that characterization but it's hard, hard not yeah. to yeah. see it as a kind of response that perhaps might not have happened at all apart from the felix culpa you know mm -hmm. or is it yeah. um or is it is it in fact was it the as, as again maximus and bogakov both sort of say the eternal counsel of god Maximus more daringly even goes on and says it's the fulfillment. The incarnation itself is the fulfillment of the eternal counsel of God. And that eternal counsel, he usually equates with the divine essence itself. Mm. Okay, so <laughs> that's pretty fixed. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty much yeah. a priority in God's uh, creative intention. It's not some response. It is, in fact, it's, it's so little the response, according to Maximus, 
that it is in fact the it, it is a response which already incorporates uh the response to sin within it but therefore doesn't uh change in its in its sort of being the ultimate telos of all things it's, it's mm. like the risk it's like the most prior response you can imagine if you if, if you follow yeah so so anyway that i would want to see that discussion unfold how this this difference in characterizing christology proper itself uh, may or may not affect the way they think about other issues mm, for sure yeah but i mean do you think it'd be this divide you're talking about do you think that it's kind of um would be speaking in too rough of terms or too oversimplified to say that you can sort of associate these with like the Western Latin tradition on the one hand, and then maybe more so the Eastern Christian tradition on the other with the, with sort of the, the Western tradition in figures like Augustine and Aquinas, both of whom you mentioned leaning towards the incarnation as, as uh, like you said, almost kind of like a remedy um, for the fallenness of the world or for sinfulness um, versus maybe more of a conception that you'd find in someone like Maximus, where, like you said, it's more, um, I don't know, I guess you'd call it like the fulfillment of the project of humanity or something like this. Do, is is that kind of painting in two broader brushstrokes, would you say? I mean, I'm sure it is, but do you think that there, uh, I guess my question is, do you think that there is any um, uh, truthfulness in kind of that that representation? What I would say is I think there's truthfulness in that representation from like the mid 19th century on. Okay. Um, so <laughs> uh, I may as well just come right out, right. And say some of the stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I, so I maybe I'll put it more positively this way. One of the things taking Bulgakov does, which again, I know this is, a, is something you, you might want to discuss more later, but um, one of the things taking Bulgakov and then I and I also think in the Ressourcement attempts to say, you know, bring certain church fathers, uh, Greek or Eastern fathers or thinkers back to the kind of to the foreground or maybe to the foreground at all, which which they've never enjoyed in the West. One of the things mm -hmm. it does, it's it's not just an East West thing. You know, it's not just like, oh, so so we can see the East is better uh, in this and that way than the West, even though. As a side note, I should say, you know, in a in a document like when you talk to Regente Grazio from Vatican II, it explicitly says around section 17 that that it stands to reason that some, you know, the East and the West, that, that each of them respectively could have understood or more deeply uh, grasped the aspects of the of the Christian mysteries than the other. Mm -hmm. So that's that's an open possibility. Um and 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 that's that's one example, right, of why um People will say the Vatican II is sort of a vindication of the retrieval attempts of, you know, early and middle 20th century uh, Catholic theologians. And it's something to keep uh, keep in mind, because what it, what it could mean is engaging Bulgakov or Maximus or whoever, a whole host of people, also affords us. It's, it's, so it's not just a, a, an adjudication between East and West, even. It's an opportunity to reconsider the West itself. And what it would do is say, for example, perhaps gives us different lenses to reassess or reevaluate other thinkers that are in the Western tradition. And I mean, some more obscure ones from like Marius Victorinus in the fourth century to uh, uh, John Scotus Ereugena in the ninth century, mm -hmm. you know, to uh, the Victorines, to aspects of St. Bonaventure's work, to 
uh, aspects of uh, Blessed John Duns Scotus and Meister Eckhart, you know, and, and Kusanis and all those other. So it's a way in which, like, like so for example, I just recently heard a talk where, where uh, uh, um, you know, uh, a friar of the Dominican order um, said that one of the things Aquinas does for us is sift the tradition. And so he, in this talk, casts out on the very idea of retrieval because he says what Aquinas, you know, can like, it's not just that Aquinas might not have known about some things, but he might have intentionally relegated the voices yeah. because they because they ought to be relegated. Not only do I think that it kind of contradicts what Vatican II was already saying and actually bidding us to come explore, it also contradicts, by the way, the uh, reappraisal of historical critical uh, study of the Bible, because surely if there's really nothing more, you know, to say about the Bible than what Aquinas did, why would you even go back and look at it? You know, mm-hmm. um, so but it also, I think, tries to uh, forfend and like, you know, like sort of it tries to keep the tradition manageable. It tries yeah, to yeah. to keep the tradition, even the Western tradition, like, no, 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 we got a line. It's clear. It's Augustine. You know, it's it's Jerome. It's Augustine. It's Aquinas and maybe a few others. Gregor the Great, you know, on certain questions, whatever. And that's that's nice because it feels secure and manageable. But as soon as you start like reassessing the the importance of, you know, the quote unquote wild ones, you know, <laughs> so the, the more no. the outliers, which, by the way, even somebody like Joseph Ratzinger didn't have a problem doing. I mean, he gave a whole speech once praising the merits of Ereugenist thought, mm-hmm. um, you know, nevertheless, it's like, um, you know, I think in times like the ones we're in where there's lots of questions, lots of polarization, lots of ideological infighting and so forth. And every single event that happens, say in the Catholic world becomes an opportunity to score points on the opponent. Then anything like a more expansive appreciation of the depths and richness, and sometimes even plurality of the tradition looks threatening. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so <laughs> uh, all that to say, I think, I think that Bulgakov engaging him, especially as myself, I'm a Catholic, I'm, I'm in the Western, clearly I'm in the Western tradition. But it helps me even make a uh, better appreciate my own tradition and then also like re-engage. Right. Because there's, of course, on the eastern side, there's reactions against Bogakov and uh, not everybody that's orthodox likes Bogakov, of course, as we all, <laughs> as we all know. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it complicates even the intra-traditional dynamics of east and west just as much as the inter dynamics yeah. between east and west. And I think that's all good. Like I'm one of those who thinks. <laughs> This is a good and useful thing. And trying to simply put the lid on the divine potency of tradition, which has no limit because it's infinite, is is a fool's errand. It won't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's turn to um, let's. I know we've been talking about Bulgakov a bit, but let's let's turn more explicitly to him. So, how, I mean, to the extent that you um, can do so briefly, um, <laughs> in brief, how would you kind of how would you kind of characterize this man, so just Bulgakov, um, you know, as a thinker, but also just as a person? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and it is a very difficult question, as <laughs> as you know. Yeah, oh man. You know, I'm tempted to do it the way that Karl Barth did when he met him. Um, and he writes in his diaries, like the night he met Bulgakov, I think it was in Switzerland at some conference or meeting. He says, I can't remember exactly the words, but he begins the the entry like, um, 
tonight I, I met a wild man or something like that, <laughs> you know, and you uh, just, those, those images, like pictures of him with his really long, wisp, you know, wispy hair yeah, and this yeah. crazy beard stuff. Kind of but, but I think actually that's, that is a way in and it's a way into his thought as well. Bulgakov strikes me as, has always struck me no matter what he's writing, no matter what degree I do or don't agree with what he's saying. He is, I know this is going to sound a little platitudinous, but he is, there is a kind of vitality to him. Like this is a man who is alive um, and he is alive to God. Like, like, you know, as you've gone over, I think in the past episodes, you know, his, his biography, uh, you know, he tries to, as it were, kind of escape his six generations of priests where that he comes from and tries to do the Marxist thing for a little bit, you know, but he, he sort of seems like a man almost in this way. I think he's like St. Augustine. He's a man who's dragged back, mm-hmm. you know, to, to God. It's almost like, he, it's almost like he, uh, I, I wish he would have written a confessions of his own. Like he can't get away. So he's alive to God in a kind of, uh, you know, unbreakable way but then he's also alive to the the pressing and urgent issues of the world and he was from the very start um whether it's like in his early you know writings talking about um social and economic issues all the way up through his as he says turn to idealism but then even later uh in his more explicitly philosophical and dogmatic work i mean all of it to me just like pulsates with this life and i think that I think that reflects the way he thinks of God. And I know we'll get to that with Sophia and mm. stuff. Um, it's, it's a kind of, um, it's a kind of conviction actually that Pope Francis just said recently. And uh, I just saw uh, that the reality is always greater than the idea. Like mm. it is always more, more determinate than any of your ideas or, or abstractions, which means there's there's only one way to access that kind of reality in its whole, and it's through your own life, like the fullness and wholeness of your life. Um, but since for Bulgakov, God and the world aren't some sort of aren't sort of these juxtapo- you know, juxtaposed realities that are struggling in some kind of rivalry with each other, but that creation itself, if you have the eyes to see, is suffused by the divine wisdom, then you cannot be alive to God and not alive to the world. And, and, you know, kind of like, I don't know, first John saying, you know, who he who doesn't love his neighbor cannot love God, like, almost like these things are in, inseparable, yeah. uh, the vertical and the horizontal, that to me, really does feel like that's the spirit I get in reading Bulgakov, whether, whether that's in like, you know, these sort of really autobiographical vulnerable moments in his spiritual diary, or when he's talking about his near death experience with throat cancer and all that. Or, or in some of the most, you know, high flying, dogmatic, you know, Lamb of God <laughs> Christology stuff, um, it's 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 just never far from this kind of pulsating vitality, um, and and that's the sense I get from him. And with that comes a sort of holistic impulse, an attempt to synthesize, an attempt to get on antinomies or apparent oppositions by finding new ways to unite them. Like all of this stuff seems to suffuse uh, his whole person and his, and his thought. And so I think it, I think he's threatening to people um, and he, he can um, be uh, unnerving for people because he doesn't have much fear. Mm -hmm. There's this kind of really childlike, um, anchoring in the absolute goodness 
and the absolute sort of canonic love of God. Um, that means he can be totally open to considering hypotheses that others wouldn't want to, to looking uh, at the tradition and being anchored in it, rooted in it, but also being critical of it. And he does for him doesn't create some crisis of, of faith, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And, and he, he has this absolute belief that the province of God didn't just stop working on history because Immanuel Kant was born <laughs> yeah. and, and wrote and wrote the critique of pure reason or because yeah. like, you know, Newton discovered the laws of you know gravity or what, you know, of motion. You know, it's like he doesn't think these things fundamentally overturn the vitality of God uh, working out and revealing himself through all history. And so I don't, I don't you know, whether, so so it's so the last point I'll make about this is. It's also really interesting to me to, to trace the drift of his writing. Um, mm-hmm. And as yeah. he goes, especially later, like post-1921, he it's really interesting how he becomes more explicitly dogmatic, like more directly engaging what many would consider the particularities of the of the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And other other traditions as well. I mean, he's familiar with you know Protestant canonicism in the 19th century, and he's writing you know analyses of Vatican I documents and getting into like the Latin and the various disputes mm-hmm. and different interpretations mm-hmm. of. I mean, he's a he's a totally capacious um, and again childlike, curious mind. But but I think he I get a sense from Bulgakov that I don't get from all the thinkers and even some of all the even some of the appreciators of him today that I think he believes fundamentally that becoming more particular in his dogmatic thinking does not mean he's becoming less universal Hmm. and his expansiveness and engagement. It's it's actually just the opposite. The more particular you get, the more universal you'll get, you know, almost as if God God can particularize himself or become flesh Hmm. and simultaneously reveal the universal logos in all things. Um, and so I think that is an interesting trajectory of his writing that um, that I think is worth emulating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like he has a real um, special capacity. And, you know, obviously, you know, his work and probably about his life a lot more than I do. But, in, you know, from what from the reading I've done, it seems like he has a real special capacity to kind of exist um in the, the like the discomfort or the tension between um i don't know like uh between i don't know between like poles or or between antinomies i think um one of the people we interviewed for this booth i won't i, don't, I think that one's going to publish after this one so i won't say who but he said one of his favorite things about bulgakov is that he can kind of um uh better than anyone else he knows he can kind of toggle between um positions without without also not having a position himself, if that makes sense. So I, yeah, I, yeah, I really appreciate his, like, kind of like what, what you're saying, his openness, um, his ability to sort of like delay the closure um, yeah. of an idea. Um, not that he doesn't ever arrive at closure, but, but I think you're right that, that, uh, that kind of openness, um, especially in, 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 as a, as a, like a mode of appreciation of the tradition, um, I think makes him, uh, yeah, stand out for sure among other, other thinkers. Um, what would you say are some of kind of the key features? I know it's another big and difficult question, but what would you say are some kind of the key features of, of Bulgakov's thought? 
So I think a few a few of the ones we mentioned uh, are worthwhile uh, to to underline. One is the role of antinomy, um, of opposition, of coming up to the um, the limits of reason. Um, but I think one thing that happens with antinomy and Bulgakov, from my reading at least, is is that he doesn't just think like it's different from Kant in that he doesn't just think like, well, let's consider you know, the conditions for the possibility of knowing at all. And, you know, after all, we're going to run up into a kind of um, a kind of absolute limit of what we can know because, you know, a priori, blah, 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 like all that stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. What he what I think he also sees. And here again, I see resonances with other thinkers in the tradition, including Arijna, is um, that um, there's a way in which the incarnation itself creates a new problem of antinomies. Like, uh, like, the, like, yes, God manhood, right, is a fundamental principle for Bulgakov. Yes, yes, sort of the incarnation's flip side being deification is a major motif throughout his work. But I think, I think he doesn't downplay the fact that pointing to a man who's being crucified in the first century by the Romans and saying this man created the world, uh, is a different level or a different degree of uh, opposition than you might uh, mm -hmm. come up with if you're thinking abstractly about things and just sort of trying to get, you know, certain concepts to relate, which are distinguished in principle. Um, in other words, you know, if the truth itself is not just a principle, but is a guy who says, I am the truth and who is crucified on the cross and is, you know, in the grave for, for two, three days. Um, that's a different, like the problem itself becomes more acute, even as the very event that makes the problem more acute from one vantage resolves it from another. Um, and I think I, so I think the, the rule, so I just say that, for example, if someone's reading through the Lamb of God and they get to the section on kenosis and, you know, some of Bulgakov's more, um, I think, you know, I think daring and bold sort of speculations on Christ's ignorance or the degree to which he diminishes himself. He says, it's kind of an interesting line. He says at one point, he does not give up the essence, the divine essence, but he gives up the glory. Which, for one thing, is just it's just you know it's just kind of a biblical idea uh, yeah. if you read it in concert with Philippians too. But also, like, um, it's uh, you know it it that can be jarring and that can feel like wow we're really departing from you know the tradition we're really departing from the parameters of of dog, dogmatic thought throughout, but. But 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 you know you have to kind of follow through that he, he might be thinking through as he expressly says he's trying to do thinking through the yes or the positive affirmation of Chalcedon rather than just its no, and it's true that Chalcedon the definition as stated basically is just um, a series of negations. You know we don't mean this, we don't mean that. Not that there are two separate realities, but also not that they're confused and fused together into like a hybrid reality and you know, all that stuff. Hmm. Um, and so he he has in his summary of that work, he says kind of nicely, he says, uh, we know Chalcedon's no, but what is its yes? And that's the task, right, is to think mm -hmm. through and beyond, not in terms of discarding, but but that initial definition has made possible a new way to proceed. And, and the way it has done that is explicitly by laying out an antinomy. 
right? The antinomy is this man, this same subject, the same person is both born of the father before all ages and in these last times, these latter times by the Virgin Mary. This man is perfectly God, which would include all the sort of attributes you normally want to assign to God, but also perfectly human, even to the point of dying um, and, and so forth, right? So you you get you get that 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 kind of theme then is a Christological antinomy. It's an antinomy which is at, at once heightened by the event of of the of the kenosis of God and in, in the incarnation, but also at the same time surpassed. Or if I wanted to be really you know edgy, maybe I'd say sublated or something like that. <laughs> and he does actually use that term on occasion. But um, yeah. Um, and 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 then the task then, at least especially in that work, I'm just using that as an example, uh, is to think through the implications of that as best as best we can, drawing from all different sources. So I think antinomy and then the other word then that would come maybe better than sublated, I would just use the word he uses himself in that work, which is synthesis, hmm. um, which is a word he, he talks about the Chalcedonian synthesis. I probably think it'd be better just to say the neo-Chalcedonian synthesis, since the word synthesis is a Greek word that isn't really used in the conciliar tradition until 553, where the hypostatic union is explicitly said to occur according to synthesis, hmm. uh, which is apparently supposed to be a, a little more determinate than union, henosis, which as the fourth canon of that council notes, it can be understood in a lot of different vague ways, some of which are, are wrongheaded. So, but anyway, it doesn't matter the historical point. The point is that Bulgakov, I think, is doing that. Like he's, this is why I don't think it's wrong to relate him to what you might call a sort of neo-Chalcedonian way of, uh, th of thinking uh, or doing theology. It's not, it's not to relegate him to that, not to say it's all he's doing or whatever. But it's just to say that, that those movements, those themes of antinomy and synthesis, both of which are also peculiarly Christological uh, rather than merely modern philosophical, mm -hmm. um, are uh, are pretty crucial. I mean, there's so many other themes, you know, that, that I could mention. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the attention to icons, the attention yeah. to uh, the liturgy, this, you know, the kind of mystical personalism that I do think that uh, Bogakov himself uh, articulates and he even attributes to Leontius of Byzantium and Neo-Calcedonian at one point, um, even as he ca calls him a scholastic, a sort of a scholasticizing uh, Christologist. But um, nevertheless, like, yeah, um, the sort of sense, the, the sort of sense of uh, the attentiveness to suffering, the attentiveness to dying and death, as in uh, or, uh, Rob Dillon-Oval's really great translation of Sophiology of Death. Um, these, these are all, massive themes that he synthesizes and brings to you. I mean, he has, that's probably one of the things I think that is most um, like bewitching about Bogakov's thought is that he has this remarkable way of being able to be highly theoretical and precise, but then all of a sudden you're, you sort of swoop down and see it's utterly spiritual and mystical yeah. and practical uh, output, yeah. like almost, almost in like one one swift glance, he can, he can go from one to the other. I just, that's remarkable to me. So anyway, yeah. those are some impressions There's so much more, of course, but yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. So yeah, as yourself, you know, a Roman Catholic, as you mentioned, I'm, I, I too am a Roman Catholic. Um, what, like what in your mind is kind of one aspect of, and I know we've touched on this a bit already, but what is kind of one aspect of Bulgakov's thought 
um, that you think could maybe be beneficial for the Western Christian traditions? Cool. Well, I, let me just say, in addition to, since I've already mentioned, yeah. in addition to the uh, the idea of that the incarnation is the pre-eternal counsel of God rather than simply a response to fa the fall, which I think would be the first one I would list. But I would say in addition to that, if we're going to be uh, very, you know, we're going to tie it to Roman Catholicism, I've always thought it was interesting that uh, Fides et Ratio specifically named Soloviev, Vladimir Soloviev, mm. and a few other Russians as uh, models to emulate now, uh, when it comes to fit, relating faith and reason. Now, of course, that doesn't mean <laughs> Fides et Ratio endorses every, everything and every idea that any of these thinkers that it lists says, but... But it does it does hold them out as models, and I think for good reason. Uh, Soloviev, as as I'm sure you've already explored elsewhere, is is um is a major influence on um on all of the Silver Age Russians, but but on Bulgakov as well. Um, and I think he does exemplify that spirit uh, in in a certain way even more than uh, Soloviev, just because he gets more and more explicitly dogmatic as he goes. Um, and it's that ability to hold together like faith and reason uh, are two modes to apprehend the self-same truth, but they're ones that have to be reciprocally re united. And actually in those sections in Fides et Ratio, it has a remarkable line that I think, I don't know, people sort of skip over where it says that faith and reason are best uh, construed as relating in a circle, which mm -hmm. I find remarkable because it's not like a line, right? It's yeah. not like first get all your reason straight. And all the stuff you can say metaphysically, just apart from divine revelation. And then we're going to add on top of that some special doctrines revealed, you know, uh, by uh, by, uh, you know, by the tradition or by supernatural revelation. And you'll have a nice little cake there that you can eat <laughs> you know, <laughs> two, two layers. It says a circle. And I think it's saying that because those thinkers, including Soloviev, and then I would include Bulgakov in that. Um, they see the reciprocity that's necessary between faith and reason, not only as like you individually engage the questions of, of the modern world, but then also as a Catholic and a Christian, but also as those two things go through time. And here, here I would plug uh, a book by my good friend Grant Kaplan, uh, who, who I think his books, recent book with CUAP called Faith and Reason Through the Ages, where he chart like that's his main thesis is that the way faith and reason relate actually itself changes through the ages, through mm, different eras. And I think that, again, I'm just going back to that sort of fundamental fearlessness and courage and Bulgakov's expansive and capacious way of thinking. He's not afraid. He doesn't think it demeans God's glory or self-revelation in, in Christ and the deposit of faith to also find illuminations of that self, that same deposit in other things, maybe other sciences, even maybe mm -hmm. other full of philosophical currents, which yes, did only recently arise and so forth. Like he doesn't think that that's a threat because after all, right. In, in his sophiology, right. The very same Christ whose natures are uncreated and created Sophia are one in him. And he himself therefore is available or, or maybe to put it in Maxwell's term, he is the Logi. He, he is the principles, the logos is the logi, which is throughout all creation. And so just because, you know, sort of, sort of these absolute boundaries that I think if we just 
fixate on method in an abstract way, it feels good to say, well, look, this discipline concerns this content. It's very different from this discipline, which concerns this other content. Yeah. And of course that's yeah. true. Like there's a way in which that's true. And you have to maintain some kind of relative autonomy and integrity to those. But at the same time, we have to recognize that um, this, all of these avenues are still avenues towards right the one and only who can say I am the truth. And so um, I think I think that for Roman Catholics who are used to thinking like, well, I can think in this separated, isolated, discrete domain with my own autonomous reason. But then whenever I go over here and I'm dealing with the truths of the faith, the articles of faith, which have been handed to me, I got to sort of, you know, instead sort of think within um these you know this this domain which is also isolated and discrete from the one mm -hmm. i just left yeah. like yeah. that kind of that kind of way again heuristically useful there is some point to d distinguishing these but if you if you absolutize that distinction that methodological distinction as if it's a real distinction even you know sort of into what we can and can't know right now yeah. um you'll risk sort of becoming you know sort of isolated from being able to advance or understand or right in the words of Vatican two, uh, day verbum eight progress always all the way until the fullness of the word. Um, and, and I think it's for good reason then that Fides et Ratio holds out some of these like Russian thinkers, uh, as a way of relating faith and reason in the circle in the way of a recipro reciprocation, which, which does require a kind of faith that isn't threatened so easily. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay, how how would you describe Bulgakov's relationship to the church, though? Because I know, obviously, I know that go, you know undergoes many changes throughout his life, and you know he becomes a priest. You know, I think around like age forty or so, um, after going through all kinds of intellectual conversions, um, but especially so in his mature years, how how would you kind of describe? Um, uh his his relationship to the church or the way he he thinks um theologically and philosophically in relationship to um things like revelation for instance yeah so i think i think it does dove dovetail a little bit with what i was saying earlier about the more sort of the, as he goes along and becomes more explicitly dogmatic or particular uh, which means he has to treat and engage the uh you know issues of the tradition which are distinctive of say Eastern tradition or like, so he's going to write on the door mission of Mary or something like that. Um, you know, I think Bogakov's, this is my hunch here. I'm sort of, I'm spitballing a little bit here. So again, no scholar of Bogakov, but one of the things that's interesting, interesting to me and what I do think affords him a unique perspective is that he's an exile or he's an expatriate, right? From Russia being kicked out in the early twenties by Lenin. And then he ends up in Paris where he's got, you know, he serves at the Institute. He's an important priest and spiritual guide for a lot of the Russian expatriates of the time, uh, sort of in a diaspora, as it were. And what's interesting about that is that, and, you know, he himself writes about this a little bit autobiographically, especially in those years where he says, you know, he, he basically is openly admitting, like, he, he's got these, like, very almost visceral um, opinions about, say, Mother Russia. Right. That mm -hmm. even though he has just been kicked out by Russia, by the, you yeah, know, by yeah. Lenin, he's still, for example, he has, uh, and I think Slazinski talks about this in the early part of his book on the theology of, of Sergius Bulgakov. 
where he says, um, you know, I can never think of a Russia without a czar, you know, which was really like out of keeping with some of the intelligentsia that he you know ran with, with the circles that he ran with, because it's this sort of like rooted, you know, visceral attachment um, to to this idea of Russia, even as he's being, as it were, persecuted by Russia, the Russia that actually exists at the time. But then I think if you take this over in terms of ecclesially and ortho and in the Orthodox tradition, it creates an interesting moment. And I think perhaps this, and again, I'm totally speculating here, but it, it, it perhaps this also affects the other thinkers that are in that same circle in Paris, especially uh, where they are now in the West, which is not just simply homegrown for them. That's um, not, you know, where they, the, the Orthodoxy they know and the church that they, the Orthodox church that they know is not really there in that, in the way it was in, you know, the Russia of their youth. Um, but at the same time, and, you know, they're open to, and they dialogue with Western thinkers, philosophy and theology and so forth. But then they also feel this sense of maintaining the orthodoxy of their youth and the Orthodox church, even though they're displaced from the, the soil that it grew in and that they know best. And so uh, I think that, it means that the church and church affiliation and his sort of ecclesial spirit in one way becomes more secure than ever, like more attached to the church than ever, because he's trying, he's invested in a project of preserving something that in his own motherland has been lost and even, uh, you know, destroyed. But at the same time, he's doing it in a context, which is as it were foreign soil, but in dialogue, right. With Protestant and Catholics of the Western world, and so he's trying to maintain that openness and that spirit of synthesis. This is where what I think partly accounts for this dynamic in his thought of the more particular, like you have to have faith that the more particular you solidify your identity, it doesn't mean you're excluding universality or even might say Catholicity, hmm. but that you're actually somehow getting to the particular incarnation of the one and only universal logos so that you don't have ultimately to choose between the two. And I think perhaps this is again, totally uh, you know, off the cuff here, but perhaps that kind of interesting, I don't know, uh, sociological or sort of like almost anthropological context that he's in ecclesial context that he's in allows him to, to, to try that project, you know, in a way that, um, you know, he hadn't been able to before. So Zinsky told, yeah. calls this period in the twenties and thirties, especially, this sort of like new new chapter, this new book of life, which is unfolding before him, almost like that context gave him this new sort of breath uh, of you know inspiration to to do what he ends up doing, mm -hmm. which is be writing way more theological and do explicitly dogmatic works than he had at all uh, prior. Interesting, yeah, yeah. It, it does seem like in recent decades, especially, there's been like a real surge of interest in. Bulgakov, um, especially, yeah, especially in the last decade or so. So, I mean, how do you how do you um, make sense of that or account for that surge, and especially the fact that it's seems to be happening not just in kind of the East or the Slavic world, but but also you know especially in the West. What, why do you think um, people are are becoming more and more interested in Bulgakov? Oh, that's that is a tough one. And definitely I'm not qualified to give a, <laughs> a scholarly yeah. answer to that. But um like I could do that with Maximus maybe, but I don't uh but no with, with Bulgakov, it's um it seems to me, I mean, you know, 
uh, I'll just say this. You know, I'm thinking especially of Rowan Williams's book on Bulgakov, which which is now fairly old. Um, but it specifically looks at his political theology. And I have long thought this uh, just just because I was, you know, in my early 20s, I was very interested in Dostoevsky and reading everything I could about him and from him. And one of the things that has always struck me about late 19th century, early 20th century Russian thinkers, again, the, of which I'm not a scholar, but is that almost and I think actually Bulgakov even does himself pontificate on this about when he's um reflecting on the geographic even the geographical positioning of russia sort of as it were between europe and 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 asia right between east and west it's like in this liminal space and one of the things that i already noticed in dostoevsky was that there's there's a sense in which russia is especially well situated to consider these new and arising ideas or philosophies or currents and theology or whatever but sort of at a distance and they're not immediately willing to just latch on. I mean, some of them were obviously there were, you know, ones that like loved the West and just wanted to make Russia the West and their Slavophiles and they want to resist that and so forth. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, there's this kind of interesting, again, liminal space, um, which allows for a kind of creative distance to to engage uh, these new thoughts and to say, like, well, is is what are the pitfalls of you know straight up Western liberalism? But then also let's look and say, and say another Western ideology. What are the pitfalls of, of just straight up Marxism? Um, but then also, you know, we do have this orthodox faith, which distinguishes us from, you know, some other uh, currents in, in uh, east of us. And so they're kind of, again, poised in between trying to to work this out. And so I think someone like Bulgakov, what's interesting is being able to look at uh, the sort of, you know, extremes of any do- predominant, you know, dominant position, political, social, or theological, or philosophical at the time, and being able to sort of, with a kind of creative distance, diagnose what could or couldn't be good about this. I mean, he's doing that already in the 19-teens, but, um, but I think like someone like Williams, Rowan Williams, sees that in him as a really useful, again, that synthetic, expansive, yeah. just different creative way of thinking. So that my first answer is sort of that is like, I want to give some credit to just the inherent value and attractiveness of Bogakov's own way of theologizing and, and trying to relate that to every aspect of human existence. Um, and I just think for quite a long time, and there have been others, others in both Protestant and Catholic tradition, in the 20th century have tried to do that, have tried to do that as well. Uh, but I think it's kind of, I, you know, the, the phrase that keeps coming to mind is one, uh, it's a, it's the name of a book by Gabriel, Gabriel Marcel, creative fidelity. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I think those people that most people, it's easier to just choose one or the other, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Creativity in the sense of pure spontaneity, just let's do something totally new or fidelity in the sense of sort of a, tr- like a super traditionalistic sort of nostalgic, let's just grasp to the past. Yeah. And when somebody attempts and, and is really seemingly successful or inspiring and being creative and, fi- and faithful at the same time, that just does, that just does stand out. And I think Bulgakov is one of the greatest examples of this in the 20th century. It's and and so even you know the question you asked earlier about his relationship to church, obviously there you know he had some 
there were certain authorities in the church that didn't quite like what he was saying and his attempts at synthesis and creativity. There were some of even his own confreres that that didn't, and they criticized him openly and so forth. But it, it kind of thinking about Bulgakov and uh, and thinking about this interview, one of the, it reminded me of something that Karl Rahner said in one of uh, you know, like one of the interviews of the last few years of his life. He specifically asked about you know the episode where he has this big run in with with the magisterium. And he says, look, it doesn't, he, he says, I know you might want me to have something really, um, you know, shocking to say, but I'm not sure what to tell you. Nobody should be surprised. He said, unless, unless you just want to simply repeat everything that's been said and not think creatively at all, then um, you shouldn't be surprised that the authorities are going to worry about you. <laughs> you <Yeah. know? laughs> Even if you're a cleric, like he, like Father <laughs> Ronner was and Father yeah. Bulgak, you know, Sergius was. Um, and so when you do creativity, you risk, you know, the merely faithful coming at you. And whenever you're merely faithful, you risk losing the entire world around you because you don't do creativity. And so yeah. I think Bulgakov is one of those that he just he just doesn't he just doesn't give up on either. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, and that's yeah. that's so attractive. Yeah, for sure. No, yeah, I think I think that that's really well said. It does it does seem like he um is unique and 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 ref- I think refreshing for folks like myself maybe who are more familiar with kind of the western theological scene whether Protestant or Catholic of the 19th and 20th century where it seems like it or at least I mean this is painting very, you know, broad brushstrokes again but it seems like the two options generally speaking on offer are like you said either kind of a faithfulness that seems to veer towards kind of a i don't know just a lapse into just kind of blatant conservatism or Mm -hmm. even kind of a defensive posture um, on behalf of the church um, in regards to the world or on the other hand kind of a creativity um uh, uh, loosed to the extent of just kind of a lapse into like, I don't know, liberalism maybe, or, or even more than that, just kind of like a demythologizing of, of revelation or, you know, a total demythologizing of revelation. And so Bulgakov can be really refreshing because he's not a, not afraid to be speculative while still holding on to a pretty serious sense of faithfulness. And especially I think, because I think in the, you know, the Roman Catholic tradition, we have some thinkers who are like that, you know, Balthazar and the Lubach, um, especially, you know, Balthazar, very speculative. But I think the extent to which those those thinkers in the West um, uh, dabble in politics or, or almost sometimes refuse to do so or the, the way in which they do so um, can can sometimes not feel quite ever uh, satisfactory. Um, whereas Bulgakov, there's like a real um, courage, I think, when he ventures out into political topics, which I think, again, it's just, mm-hmm. it's just really refreshing. Yeah, um, and I think so, another aspect of that is is kind of the... The other two things I would say, just in terms of attractiveness, yeah. are the Christological yeah. impulse and the synth- synthesis, which, you know, you mentioned Delubach. It's you know very interesting. Not long ago, I read his his book that is basically a defense of Teilhard de Chardin. Yeah, you know, and uh, 
it, it's like okay, Delubach is writing a defense of this guy, even if he's he you know, he has criticisms here and there. But he, he's yeah. trying to say there's something vitally important about not losing this link between Christ and creation, yeah. um, and and that actually helps us to face the, the the modern scientific picture of the world in a way that like we need something else. We can't just simply repeat exactly as we've re- received, and yet you can't ignore what you've received, right? Etc. It's creativity. Yeah. But then, but then the other thing about Bulgakov, the only other thing I'll mention is that kind of the, I do think that he's got a unique ecumenism, you know, ecumenical outlook that that is unique among the Eastern thinkers. I mean, as I've already mentioned, this is a guy who, you know, he's going to discuss like Isaac Dorner's, you know, discussions of of 19th century (laughs) Lutheran canonicism. He can also discuss the Latin of Vatican I and he's, you know, but then he's full, you know, fully familiar with the the Orthodox Eastern tradition, and also with modern Western and idealist philosophy and critical philosophy, right? So he's doing all this stuff. It's it's hard for me to point to any Orthodox thinker of the 20th century who can do all of that. Mm-hmm. And it does have analogs, like you said, uh, like in the Catholic world, Balthazar, you know, making use of Bulgakov himself. But also, yeah. you know, uh, writing a whole book on Karl Barth and defending the very idea of doing that in the first 50 pages in a wonderful way. And right. So it's so so many more than just Eastern thinkers are interested in Bulgakov because he's interested in all of them. Yeah. And and then you and then you start to find out kind of remarkably, he starts he, he anticipates so many major things that are that even, you know, uh, crop up and are sort of neuro- sometimes neuralgic points in other traditions. Like, let's say for one example. Rahner's Trinitarian axiom, you know, in his little book on the Trinity, the economic Trinity is the uh, imminent Trinity. The imminent Trinity is the, economic. well, like Bogakov had said that like 20 years prior. Um, mm. And, mm. and so it's interesting. It's like, how did they arrive? Right. How did they arrive at those similar <laughs> positions? And so there's a lot of interest like that. His, his kind of capaciousness, but his ecumenical outlook. And, and so th- for a lot of those reasons, my guess is those have something to do with why he's, you know, the renaissance is sort of still going on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's look at, um, sociology of death, which is the, um, collection of essays, uh, which, uh, Cascade just published translated by, like you said, um, Roberto de la Noval. Um, uh, and so you, you actually wrote an article or kind of a review of this, of this book, um, and you you cite uh, David Bentley Hart's words, which he because he wrote the introduction to the book. And so in that introduction, he says, and I'm quoting here that um, this text sounds the depths of Bulgakov's theology in a way that no other text available in English does. And so within within that article um, that you're writing, you you also say, and I'm quoting again here from you this time, um, the sociology of death. The book, this book, uh, has easily become the best introduction for Anglophone readers to Bulgakov, who ranks among the most insightful Christian thinkers of the last few centuries. I will henceforth recommend it as such. So, what is it? What is it about this little book? This little, you know, two hundred page book that packs um, so much punch and that that re- that um, represents Bulgakov's broader project so well? Would you say? So I think two aspects in particular, one, and and all the credit, of course, goes to Rob, not only for translating, but for curating the, this uh, group of texts, which is, it's an anthology, you know, it's a, it's different texts um, written at different times and in different venues that he brought together. And I think, I think it was a part of his aim to make this kind of like a great comprehensive overview of Bulgakov's, Bulgakov's uh, thought. 
And I think he's successful because you get like, you know, the first several essays are basically Christianity and politics. And that nicely maps onto Bulgakov's early formation, you know, his, his being a professor who's, who's, who's also contributing to collections on, you know, social and economic questions in Russia in the early 20th century. Um, but then also just kind of this political, like full-blown, you know, political theology. Like, it's remarkable to see him writing this stuff. I mean, some, some of us were, you know, influenced maybe uh, years ago by the thought of like Stanley Hauerwas or, you know, um, William Cavanaugh or something like that. And, and that all is good. And it's got its own, you know, it's all different and stuff. It's, it's not all just the same, but it is remarkable to read somebody in the early 20th century who writes a, you know, essay called like the kingdom of God or whatever. And it's like simultaneously sort of critical of, you know, the way the East has done uh, church world or church politics relation, but also the West. And again, it's this sort of, you know, as you mentioned earlier, toggling between positions without, you know, without failing to have his own position. Mm -hmm. So you get this like Bulgakov engaging political and economic issues head on. But then it moves into like, you know, some of his um, his more sort of uh, reflections and sometimes critical reflections on the tradition, including, uh, I think, a really great essay, Augustine and Predestination or Augustinianism and Predestination. Which is which has got things in there with like Bogakov saying that Saint Augustine, or as they call him, like Blessed Augustine, is you know one of the, if not the, the greatest, the most you know illuminating mind of the patristic era. So he's got a lot of good things to say about mm-hmm. Augustine, yeah. but then he has a severe criticisms of him around this issue of predestination. Um, and so you get this kind of like Bogakov engaged fully, a creative fidelity, right? He's he's engaged with the tradition. He knows it. He tries to do respect to it by knowing really what he's talking about. But then he does. He's not simply beholden to it or it's or there or it's limits. But then I think the last little selection is really remarkable, interesting. You know, it's it's this mix of uh, Bogakov's sort of you know more formal reflections on like the actual essay called The Sophiology of Death. He's trying to reflect on Christian death and dying uh tied in you know with the passion of christ and just kind of with his general sociological outlook on god world uh, relation but then you get like very within that same essay i even think it's it's these remarkable turns to the the explicitly autobiographic his own wrestling with with uh with his uh throat cancer Mm -hmm. the kind of pain and torment physical suffering he goes through the sense in which he gets that his own dying and death is, is not separate from Christ's own dying and death and how there's this even reciprocity, this bond of uh, in dying with, you know, the son of God dying and our dying and just remarkable. Again, it's, it's one of those moments where the kind of high flying theoretical uh, dogmatics is literally interwoven with his his very own personal pragmatic facing of death and dying and suffering and excruciating. And that's just a remarkable essay. It's fitting that the whole collection's named after it. But then you get his, you know, at the, towards the end, you get these sort of reflections, like exegetical reflections on the book of Revelation and and uh, what that means for eschatology and the plan of God's, were, uh, you know, uh, providence sort of unfolding. So I just think in brief, this collection... You get the you get the full panorama of Bogakov yeah. and the sort of richness of his thinking, 
so that's that's one thing. I've actually kind of said both. The one thing is the panorama, but then I think really specifically, and now it can be complemented by the spiritual diary that Rob and Mark Rusin ha- have published uh, a mm-hmm. translation of. Mm-hmm. You get the really, you get the spiritual father, the the almost mystic, the sort of spiritual guide, uh, right? The priestly Bogakov, which I think is so easily dismissed because he is so capable and philosophical theology and sort of high flying, you know, dogmatics. Mm -hmm. And the truth is he just, he's just a unity of all of that. And so if you're looking for the unity of Bogakov's person in his work, that's, that's, I think that volume, I'm not sure there's a better one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. I mean, one thing we haven't talked about, which I think we would be remiss if we did, if we, uh, if we left on the shelf is Sophia. Um, So, Mm -hmm. so in your, that same article on, on the sociology of death, you, you talk quite a bit about Sophia um, and you, you kind of elaborate two, um, two approaches to Sophia, which of course is a very important theme in, in Bulgakov's work. Um, and you, you kind of make the claim that both of those, both of those approaches actually make appearances in Bulgakov's, um, in Bulgakov's work. Um, so could you say a little bit more about what these two approaches to Sophia are? Yeah. So yeah, in, in brief, the two approaches are this, um, I think it's easy and intuitive to, to, to take the first approach, which says this, Sophia is the principle, the common principle between God and sort of the divine world, the intertrinitarian life and, um, and the world that God, you know, that comes forth from God or that God creates. Um, and so, so that, divine Sophia, like it's Sophia is the wisdom of God, right? And by the way, you should say that, you know, Bulgakov with the tradition, right, knows scriptural precedence for the idea that, right, that the world was created through wisdom, whether that's Proverbs 8 mm-hmm. or, uh, right, uh, wisdom, the, the book of wisdom, chapter 7 or whatever. So he has these precedents. And then, of course, there's also the tradition and there's also the Eastern tradition of venerating Sophia, even in an icon or right in their in their uh, churches, beautiful churches, Hagia Sophia. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, but there's this. um, So there's a sense in which the link like like you can take a kind of what I call their metaphysical approach, which has a counterpart as a phenomenological experience, which is to say, well, what Sophia is trying to get at is that the world and its beauty, its truth, its glory it has its fundamental ground or root or cause in nothing less than, you know, the, the triune life of God. So that when, so that's the metaphysical claim is this is kind of like everything, you know, it's, it's almost like related to the divine ideas tradition in a way where mm-hmm. everything that, that, that comes forth from God in many is really already in God as one in some way. Right. And so, and so there's, a, but then that has the counterpart in the phenomenological experience is like, so all the beauty, you know, the beauty of the sunset, the beauty of love, the, uh, the glory sort of, of, uh, uh, I don't know, of a newborn, mm-hmm. um, the, these things are like little windows into, or maybe even participations in the divine so that the whole world is suffused with God's wisdom, his, his glory, his beauty. And so this also helps explain, you know, even like personal mystical experiences of which I think Bogakov had you know, two or three notable ones, mm-hmm. um, as, as did Vladimir Soloviev before him, who also made much of Sophia and Sophiology. Um, 
so that's one way of looking at it. And kind of the way I talk about it there is like, that's a sort of intuitive, it's a, it's a nearer to like a classical sense of God is cause of all, therefore all, all God's effects participate in God as the cause. Therefore, as you experience the effects, you experience in some, in, in the modes of the effects, you experience the cause. And I think that's fine. It's just, I don't think, and I think sometimes Bulgakov does talk that way. And sometimes I think people get a little confused because Bulgakov, Bulgakov likes to ask, he likes to frame some of his works with this kind of question. And again, Slazinski points this out, even as early as like philosophy of economy, where the main question in that work is, how is economy possible? And Slazinski says, you know, um, um, this is a Kantian question, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because Kant asked in the first critique, how is cognition, power, knowledge? Yeah. possible. And so what do you do? Well, then what you expect is you think back to the conditions for the possibility of the thing that you experience or know directly. And then like, like what needs to be true as a priori or prior conditions, preset almost conditions for this, for this, which you know, to be, to be possible to be right. So he he does the same thing in Lamb of God, where he even explicitly, again, in his own resume of the work, he says, the question is, how is the incarnation possible? The problem is, that's not exactly a metaphysical question. Hmm. It's a, it's, it's, if it is, if it's truly a Kantian approach, then it's really first and foremost, a question of knowing. Um, what, what needs to be, what are the conditions within which we can know this as incarnation? So that's not necessarily a meta, like a sort of classical pre-modern claim of, uh, well, we just need to think back. And this is sometimes, I think, the first approach. Some people do this. They're like, well, um, in order for God to become human without somehow mutating or something, uh, it's there's got to be a sense in which God was, as it were, always already, like eternally human. And this this is sort of what Sophia is trying to, uh, uh, you know, in its creaturely and divine mode. And somehow, as he says, like he says, these are two modes, but the same content or the same principle. Um, the divine world and the creaturely world are the same. It's just that the divine world is like it's being and the creaturely world is becoming. It must become. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he plays with all these. But but his point would be there's a fundamental almost metaphysical bond between God and not God in God Hmm. from, Hmm. from eternity. Now I don't, as I, as you said, right in the article, I don't think that's wrong. I don't think this is a totally wrong account of what Sophia is. I just think it's not yet the whole picture. And that leads then to the second account, which is that um, I think really Sophia, I mean, let's not forget what the word he's using here is wisdom. And, you know, whether you think back to Plato or you think back to Aristotle, Sophia is like part of the point of it, especially in philosophical ethics, is to say, you know, someone is wise when they know how to join together in a wise or prudential act, join together a universal principle or law with the particular context within which the act is being, you know, uh, undertaken. Hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, someone, someone who is, is not wise just because they can rattle off wise principles. Uh, but, 
they're also not quite wise if they just do things and happen to get it right and they don't really know why. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So if you're just merely particular, then you're just lucky. <laughs> if you just sort of if you just sort of not, you don't think beyond your context, you simply just react, but it just happens to be the right thing. That's just chance. But if you were like merely head in the clouds abstract and you're you're obsessed with universal principles, that doesn't explain the transition from the universal, the universality of of a, an ethical principle and then its particular application in a certain context. Hmm. This is why we this is why already Aristotle is saying, right, like you can't you have to know a wise person to know wisdom. You have to imitate the exemplars and say, oh, that's what it looks like to be wise precisely because wisdom can't be um, just sort of templated and universally applied in a kind of, you know, uh, you know, formulaic way. It's always attentive. The wise act is always attentive to the particularities of whatever circumstance you're in, in such a way that you couldn't have abstracted apart from that circumstance. So I, I try to characterize the second approach then as divine wisdom is fundamentally act is the act of God's triune life, which Mm -hmm. does surpass all of our abstractions about say the divine essence or even the divine person sort of as such, like a hypostasis as such or something. And then of course it, it also goes beyond the sort of abstraction about the world that, Oh, we got, so that's usually the way we do it. Right. And it's really fascinating. And bride of the lamb, uh, Bulgakov, some of his most, I think, sophisticated and mature reflections of Sophia actually come in the context of him denying uh, that God is simply the cause of the world. Hmm. Well, what, why is he doing that? What's the point there? And I think for me, the way I read him is he's trying to say, well, look, there is, and this maps a little bit more onto the first way of thinking, right? There's a way in which you can sort of abstract God and the world and therefore the relation. And it kind of follows along a, a, you know, a sort of a logical cause effect or, first this and then this pattern. So God was there. God is enjoying the fullness of his divine, you know, glory, you know, glorious wise life among the three. God then at some point, maybe, I don't know, you know, decides to create. Um, <laughs> and, and then what he produces sort of has reflections or sort of uh, catches, you know, uh, sort of the sheen of God's primordial glory. Um and and that's it. But but actually, by the Lamb, he's actually saying, but but this is a, this is an abstraction. And the problem with that is, if God's true life, His full Trinitarian life, is precisely an act between three eternal persons who are themselves peculiar Son, Father, Son, Spirit, then you haven't even come close to capturing the true relation, uh, intra you know, sort of Trinitarian Trinitarian relation, and therefore certainly not the ad extra relation between God and the world. Because the act of wisdom is not some simple sequence or principle. And this is where, so why I brought up earlier that Lamb of God, the question is, how is the incarnation possible? Why it's important to see that that's not necessarily simply a metaphysical question, but is sort of more in the modern post-critical sense. It's a question of what what are the conditions of us knowing? Then that opens up a bi-directionality within Bulgakov's, I think, Christology and ultimately his idea of sophiology, which is it's just as true to say that yeah, that that God um, was, as it were, always already human 
as it is to say that, um, you know, humanity is always already divine or being mm -hmm. deified. So there's a kind of reciprocity there, which which would not ultimately in the son of God, who is both God and human, whose natures, Bogakov clearly states, are creaturely and, and uncreated Sophia, you know, divine and human. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that he is both of them at once and that he himself both is before, as it were, as the cause and after as the effect. And I know mm -hmm. people don't like that, but it, it really is just uh, <laughs> it really is just an implication of calling him human unless you think humanity itself isn't created. Um, but since he is both, then the very logic, the abstract logic of cause starts to starts to, as it were, you know, go off the rails from the very fact of the event. In other words, again, we're back to the act, the act of God's wisdom, which is which bursts forth for us from the incarnation actually and i'm going to say something here that's a little technical but hopefully we can go for in, a, it. in a way in a way it retroactively it posits its own conditions in its actualization hmm. so that's the fullness of what it means for him to say in this work in lamb of god i'm saying what is what is it that makes the like why is the incarnation possible it's not that he's simply sticking in the first idea of sophia well, we have to sort of think back to God in his Trinitarian life and say, oh, there must have been something like a potency for God to become human. And that's why when he becomes human, sort of it's not alien to him to do that. Well, no, I mean, Bogakov's thought is antinomic. And so there is a way in which it is like the very event itself presents us with the starkest uh, antinomy, namely that life itself could die. Hmm. And then you work back from that fact and you say, well, what in the world? How would that be possible? The only way it's possible is, yes, if God has always already, you know, creaturely Sophia is already in God. But also there is no creaturely Sophia in God. That's not also, right, uh, a creature, creaturely Sophia um, being deified already forward. So it's a reciprocal, it's a bi-directional uh, relation rather than simply uh, a cause-effect relation. and that. That is only indicative of act, of wisdom, mm -hmm. and of the mm -hmm. infinite wisdom, which is nothing less than the life of the three, of the three, you know, the mm -hmm. triune God. Sure. So that's that's what I'm trying to get at. Um, you know, that's an initial stab at different aspects. So I think they're both there, but they really have to be held together or else, or else we become a little too one-sided in our understanding of what he means. Sure, yeah, that's really interesting stuff. So I, th I mean, I think we're kind of dancing around our next couple of questions already, um, which have to do with uh, kind of how the God world relation figures in Bulgakov's thought, which I know we've, we've touched on a bit already, but I want to talk especially about um, this, yeah, this issue, which has, you know, as you know, far better than I do, vexed uh, theologians and, and philosophers for centuries um, which is how to kind of reconcile a God who is one or who is simple with a world, which is, which is many or manifold, um, manifold sometimes to the point of seeming like chaos. So how, how does Sophia in Bulgakov's mind, um, kind of account for this issue or this tension between the one and the many? And then also, I mean, I know we have another question here about kind of the shadows you see of German idealism and, Bulgakov's thought, mm -hmm. especially on the one and the many. So um, 
we can kind of fold that question into the into um the prior one if you want to uh, yeah. also maybe talk about the role of german idealism yeah no that's that's good <laughs> it's big um yeah. <laughs> so i mean yeah i as you say right the one in the many has been <laughs> the vexing question forever i mean i i think always immediately of uh, plato's parmenides uh dialogue where at the beginning one of the characters you know he's listening it's actually a wonderful uh dialogue and i think uh, people like eric pearl are right to sort of say this is the central dialogue for later platonic tradition especially the neoplatonists but Mm. what's really remarkable is as you know as is a good mark of of a really good thinker plato seems to be at least on one i think fairly uncontroversial reading he seems to be almost trying to stage a, a critique of his of one of his own beloved doctrines, namely the doctrine of participation. Right? Because for him, participation is meant to kind of address that problem of the one and the many. So you can say, well, how, how is there one and many? Well, let's just say uh, the many participates, which is a partial sort of idea participates the one the one is totally simple the one is you know not broken up into components isn't dependent on some system of elements or whatever uh but uh but the many the many are not only just many but each of the many is one and so you start to notice that the one uh you know in a sense is present and is the very power of each one of the many to be one although none of the many is the one. <laughs> so, um, and what's great is at the beginning of the Parmenides dialogue, uh, he says, well, you know, Zeno, I think is the one who's uh, sort of giving the speech about the participation. But uh, one of the characters says, well, what Zeno says is, is good. And it's basically that kind of doctrine of participation. So it sounds good. I mean, of course, we know that there is no many that's not also a one but that's not necessarily to say it is the one. Hmm. Um, he says, but if Zeno were to tell me that one of the many is the one, then I would be amazed. And that's always struck me because it's sort of, and, and the rest of the dialogue sort of unfolds in these, you know, different, almost you might call them antinomies, these different seemingly irreconcilable uh, ideas about how to relate these two further, even beyond participation. And I think uh, what's important with that, there's the, of course, there's the whole divine ideas tradition that tries to find a way to say, well, and this was already back in the Stoics, we're doing it, uh, the, uh, the Middle Platonists, Neoplatonists, all the way through the Latin scholastics, all of them are sort of saying, well, what if, what if the many is like many ideas in the divine intellect? Um, so the intellect itself is one single simple act of knowing, but what it knows is many. And so the, the many objects of knowledge are sort of in some sense, the ground of plurality or like in Aquinas's version, God comparing his own simplicity to the many objects he knows in the divine intellect is itself kind of the generation of the plurality or the many, whatever. There's many different ways to run this. But um, I think the problem is, if I could be really broad, the problem is that like there's no, there's, it's a lot easier to maintain the one and the many if you basically think in terms of moments or even cycles. Like it makes sense to say first there was the one like as Plotinus does. And then he says, you know, sort of, he says he doesn't know why in one text, especially he says it's it's like inexplicable reason. The many bursts forth from the one. 
So then you have this almost provisional relation between one and many. And then more sophisticated accounts would say like, well, in a sense, um, you know, because because there's the return, if there's the procession out of the one of the many, what, uh, what about the many returning to the one? And certain Neoplatonists would say, well, in a sense, everything is always both proceeding and returning, you know, mm-hmm. uh, your existence apart from the one is proceeding. But then insofar as you become like the one through, you know, being good, through being knowledgeable and wise, you sort of return to the one. Um that's okay. That's fine. But, and then maybe there's a, say, if you're a stoic, you'll have a conflagration and everything simply returns to divine logos. And then you start over again, right? These are all, these are all very different views, but what one thing they have in common is there's, there's not really a reason to make the antinomy like absolute because you can still sort of think of them as variously identical and different through almost cycles of either real metaphysical, you know, unfolding, or at least just in the unfolding of your mind, logically. And um, I think, again, I'm going to sort of go out on a limb here and say, but I think, you know, I, I think the, the, the very fact of the wisdom of God incarnate creates the problem as much as it resolves it, or maybe as it were, does both at once. Because it's really not until you say this very same subject is both one and one of the many. Hmm. That's when it's like, okay, so our normal ways of sort of keeping a a conceptual distance between the two start to fall apart. Mm -hmm. Because you you can't, right? I, I can sort of, even just on the level of pictures, I can sort of, I can sort of understand what it means to say, Many come from one and the one, you know, the many return to the one. And I can even understand all the qualifications that try to say like, well, but you can't think of the one as if it's alongside the many because you're already not thinking of it correctly and so forth. Hmm. Um, And there's all kinds of, you know, different uh, versions or iterations of what you do or don't want to emphasize within that system. But I just think when you get to the God man hanging on the cross, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? a lot of those conceptual schemes just don't work anymore. They don't, they're not at the least they're not adequate. They might still have a use. And I think they do. I think Bogakov thinks that too, but they can't really get at what, what is happening before your eyes. Right. Mm -hmm. So here again, the act exceeds all abstract ideas about the act. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I think, uh, I, I think if I can, try to relate it to the two questions then <laughs> yeah i would say you know that, that um the the wisdom of, like like bulgakov's sophiology he explicitly says in bride the lamb i think it's around page 39 even it, it, it's a it's a sophiology that cannot be apart from christology hmm. and it cannot be apart from the incarnation and i think that's why I mean, you clearly you can have a sophiology of sorts apart from Christ and incarnation because there has there have been some right, hmm. uh, but his version, his particular sort of way of of running this, like I think he thinks there is no abstract way to resolve the problem of the one and the many, and so even invoking wisdom, wisdom isn't an is not an idea; it's an idea that tells you that mere ideas are not enough. Hmm. Instead, you have to attend to the life. He he often equates, he does sometimes equate Sophie, Sophia with essence, divine essence. But more often he says the Trinitarian life 
or the glory. The glory is sort of this like mutual or reciprocal manifestation of the three to each other and the oneness of being in life. Mm-hmm. Like it's a richness of a self same life, which is simultaneously plural. Mm-hmm. And, and it's both at once. It's not a sequential first one, then many, right? The Trinity itself is already, already surpasses that, that very juxtaposition or antinomy. And so, um, yeah. And so I, th- I think the, so to put it briefly, then uh, sort of, uh, the event of the incarnation specifically the crucifixion of the son of God creates, uh, so exacerbates the age old question of one and many, as soon as you want to identify that one with the one. Uh, but then, but then it, it kind of also requires you then, and this is kind of just actually hasn't happened over the patristic era, right? It requires you to think back to, well, hold on. What is God like? If one of God or this one or this man who is also the one can be crucified and get killed, mm-hmm. um, and that and that's why right Christology uh, is interwoven with, inseparable from, and even led to Trinitarian theology, which even uh, uh, was it Brian Daly in his book uh, God Visible on Patristic Christology. I mean, he says that right off the bat. You had to rethink, you know what God was like from the, from the incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection. Um, anyway, so how does this relate to German idealism? Well, <laughs> uh, well, let's just say, um, you know, Schelling is tough. Uh, Schelling is noted, but I think hasn't been sufficiently noted. Although I think there are scholars that are starting to do more work on that part of it. Um, Hegel, I think is also noted. Um, but, but even, you know, depends on what part of Hegel and Schelling you're comparing. But let's just say a general idea from German idealism that I do think is influential on Bogakov or that he see that in it, he sees a Christian impulse is one, maybe one way to put it is, is this idea that God has to, um, God has to sort of be the, uh, the synthesis of what we abstractly consider irreconcilables. Hmm. It does not mean that irreconcilables are are reconciled on the level at which you see them as irreconcilable. What it means is that abstraction isn't the fullness of reality, or you might just say, isn't the fullness of Sophia, isn't the act, which is more than the idea. So, so I, I'm not claiming, and I don't think Bulgakov is claiming like, oh, you know, it's this nice, simple process of like, well, you've got these two sets of antinomies and we just need a principle to kind of resolve them so we can feel good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, You know, it's, it's no, in fact, the antinomies themselves are generated in the very, in the very event in fact, or act ultimately the Trinitarian act of being the Sophia, the very act of their being one in a totally inconceivable way prior to the mm. experience of the act. Wow. Yeah. So I think I I think you can read um, uh, German idealism that way. I don't think everyone thinks that for sure, yeah. but um, but I think insofar as as you do and you see, uh, you know, and it, it could well be that Bulgakov uh, at least sees that that kernel of truth in what they're trying to do. You know, say when when Hegel is trying to uh, trying to say that you know the logos within us or the sort of move from understanding to reason is is nothing less than divine reason within. And you see that all over right? with Bogakov, every human being, like all of creation has a created and uncreated principle within them, 
which mm-hmm. Sophia, you know, of which, which is two modes of Sophia, you know, and so forth. So I, so I think you can, you can at least relate those. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great stuff. Thank you for answering my very oversized question. <laughs> um, let's, yeah, you were, you were kind of dabbling a bit in talk of incarnation in your answer. So I, I know that you're kind of an incarnation guy and you probably have lots more you can say, <laughs> but for the sake of time, I think let's pass over that second to last question. Mm-hmm. And then, um, we'll save the most controversial question for last, uh, which is how, you know, how has, uh, maybe not everybody knows um, that's listening that Bulgakov was something of a universalist. So how has kind of his iteration of the pocket stasis uh, influenced your own universalism, if, if it indeed has influenced yours? Yeah, I think it it has confirmed. I, I as I said, I kind of came to Bulgakov a little later than than I had to, you know other figures like Origen or Saint sure. Isaac or Saint Maximus or or even like a George MacDonald or whoever. Um, and one of the, but I say I, I kind of thought of one specific point, which really um, so at the end of um, it's like the last two or three pages of that little book, Sophia, the Wisdom of God from uh, nineteen thirty two. He makes this remark in passing where he says freedom is a mode of being, a mode or a, a way or quality of being. It's not itself like the principle or telos, which, which is really remarkable because I think you find that pretty explicitly in thinkers like Origen or George MacDonald, who are you know kind of the stall you know examples of stall stalwart universalist in Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's important to see what he's saying there. And that, like he put words to that, which I had already been kind of dabbling with, uh, and specifically in relation to uh, von Balthasar's uh, version of a kind of appreciation of universalism, but not going full, you know, fully to the extent of a, a kind of hard universalism. Um, where um, what's important to see about that is that it's also personalist um, in the kind of modern sense of. Uh, like God didn't set out to just create a world order, which which then has its sets of laws that God has to sort of play by or through and try to get the greatest, the best result he can at the end of the first, you know, the run through the unfolding. What he created was a world which produces created spirits, namely persons, each of whom has to be gotten to in their own individual and specific way. Which is really interesting. This isn't totally Eastern idea either. I was reading Ad Simplicianum by Augustine, which is from the early, you know, mid, uh, what is like 396, uh, where he's, where he makes this point about grace at one point (laughs) in the midst of making quite a different point about predestination. But he says, uh, he says, don't think that God can't get to any particular person. And then he starts listing examples like like when Saul of Tarsus, you know, was knocked off the horse mm-hmm. or, you know, and he gives some biblical examples where he's he's trying to say God can get to any person. He knows how to get to them if he wants to. Now, of course, Augustine at the end of that text sort of uh, unsettling, unsettlingly uh, seems to suggest he just might not want to for yeah. everyone. Um, and that you just have to accept that as the kind of the darkness of God's mystery. But nevertheless, I still think he's saying something true about that, that, that those examples, which is to say, you know, what the question, why do I convert to God? Does that have an answer or not? Well, the answer can't be abstract because then, you, then see here, we're back to wisdom, right? 
Because then if it was just like a universal template or principle that you just apply willy nilly to particular situations, then you wouldn't have to pay you know attention to the particulars of anyone's actual situation. There would just be one answer for everyone. Here's why you convert, right? And that's that's comforting for people because it feel that it makes them feel like they have a kind of handbook for how to you know convert people or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the truth is much more right it goes beyond any kind of abstraction whether it's the abstraction of a universal principle or the abstraction of particular considered apart from any particulars and it's the actual person and so uh god god can and will find a way to get to every actual person even though that way or reason is not abstractable just like any person is not abstractable um and I think when Bulgakov says that freedom is a mode of being, what he's saying is something that Origen already says, like in his commentary on on uh, uh, Romans, like Augustine has moments of saying, as I mentioned, and George MacDonald says in you know Lilith, for example, um, where it's not like the universalist has to choose between, well, is this freedom or necessity? You know, will God mm-hmm. force everyone to be saved? Or is he going to respect their freedom, which means they could perpetually yeah. resist him or resist yeah. him definitively in this life? And that's already to confuse the fact that freedom is a mode of being, not the eternal intention of God, which is being itself. It is the cause. It is the only one and only creative cause of the world and of every individual. And so God can't. So the dilemma isn't will God force you or not? The dilemma is. Can God get to you through you or not? Hmm. It's that you, the way you live as a rational spirit does entail your freedom and it entails your ascent, your free loving embrace of God's own free loving embrace. But it's not like love has no reasons. It's that the reasons are not abstractable and therefore analytical. Mm-hmm. And I think Bulgakov gave me that quick sort of uh, summary when he's when he speaks of freedom as a mode of being you know that again that can sound real sort of scholastic or whatever but actually that's a profound point and it's it's a very personalist point if i if i do say so myself and so that's all that the universalist has to say is that there are that everyone has a reason to convert and that god knows how to bring about that reason hmm. Hmm, and that yeah. absolutely respects process by the way it's why it's wrong to say, well, look, I, I look around today and I see lots of people sinning, you know, and doing things yeah. they know that are bad and rejecting <laughs> God. Therefore, that could happen forever. Well, that's only true if every moment and every process has the same possibilities as the process, the moments before it. But anyone who's raised children or who has themselves grown up knows that that's not true. Yeah. What's yeah, possible for, sure. for me to realize and to will at age 16 is rather different than it was at age six or 60. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. yeah. That's great stuff. Well, um, yeah, I want to, want to respect your time and, and let you get going with your day, but I do just want to say thank you for coming on. It's been really wonderful to have you on again. Um, really, really rich <laughs> conversation. So I appreciate your time. Well, I really, really appreciate being here and thank you for, uh, you know, letting like the little brother come in here. Cause I know you've had three <laughs> other legitimate Bulgakov scholars, but I'm just, I'm just glad to be here as a super fan, you know, hyping them up. <laughs> I don't think any of them saw you as a little...
as the little brother of the conversation, if that's any encouragement. So, well, I need to, I need to have a talk with them then. <laughs> <laughs> Set them straight.